We are taking a break from our Exodus series, and we're going to look at the Incarnation, and we're going to look at a, a few verses from Hebrews today, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. After all the efforts to prepare for the possible arriving of a hurricane, or maybe after the days of preparation for a holiday meal that gets gobbled up in a matter of minutes, or after perhaps throwing a lavish birthday party for our one-year-old, or perhaps any other, any other difficult or costly endeavor, at the end of it, we may ask ourselves, was that really necessary? Did I, did I really need to do all that? Was it really necessary? And kind of a corollary to that question is, was, was there another way to do it? Was there some other option here that might have been easier or perhaps less costly? Well, uh, today we're going to consider the most extraordinary measure ever taken. The most extraordinary measure ever taken, and that's God's incarnation. That is, God becoming a human being. And we're going to ask this question that is, that is addressed in, in our text today. And the question is this. Was that really necessary? Was that really necessary? Or was there perhaps some other way to accomplish whatever God wanted to accomplish by taking this extraordinary step? These verses explain what the incarnation is and why it is necessary. Now, the incarnation, and, and here we, we have buried in incarnation the word carne or carnal, uh, which has to do with flesh. So it's the enfleshment of God, the becoming flesh. And the writer uses that sort of earthy language, that carnal language, when he describes what happens here in verse 14. Uh, the incarnation is God becoming human just like us, just like us, the same kind of humanity that we are ourselves. And he uses this earthy language here in verse 14. And notice how the argument goes. Since, therefore, the children, the children of humans, share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. What same things? The flesh and the blood. Not different things, not similar things, but the very same things. And the argument is very simple. If we humans have flesh and blood... Human flesh and human blood, well, 
if God wants to become one of us, then what does he need to have? He needs to have flesh and blood, just like our flesh and blood. Now, this idea is uncomfortable for us. It seems to be a mixing of categories, doesn't it? And this idea has been so uncomfortable for humans throughout all of of church history that various heresies or erroneous ideas, theological ideas, have arisen to to, to try to protect God from getting too close to us. Because that makes us uncomfortable, that that God would take on this kind of stuff, the exact same kind of stuff that we have. And there is an early, early heresy or false teaching called docetism, and we may hear some some echoes of that or some references to that in, in John's letters toward the end of the New Testament. But the idea was this, God shouldn't get mixed up with people like us. That will be really, really bad for God's reputation, for him to get too close to people like us. And so we need to protect him from that, that kind of contamination of uh, this kind of material, carnal, fleshly sort of stuff. And so the idea of docetism was that Jesus is the Son of God, and he looks a lot like a human. In every aspect, he seemed to be a human, but he wasn't exactly. It was, it was some sort of a, a, a different kind of manifestation. It looks a lot like humanity, just like humanity, but, but we can't have him, have him really being a human just like us. We also may be, may be kind of docetic. We may have a tendency toward that heresy. A friend of mine wrote a seminary paper called I Was a Teenage Docetic. And I think we all have that kind of tendency when we reflect on Jesus, the Son of God, with messy diapers. Or when we think about Jesus, the adolescent, with acne. Uh, Or when we think about Jesus getting awkward as an adolescent around girls. Or maybe getting pushed around on the playground. Or cutting his fingers on Joseph's saw. That's the kind of stuff that flesh and blood experience. And, And to think of God with, let's say, acne. That, that makes us uncomfortable. Or God as a, a gangly teenager that's not super comfortable in his own skin. That, that makes us uncomfortable. And so we may want to distance God from that sort of awkward, uncomfortable aspect of humanity. But the, the writer here won't let us off the hook like that. He says, if. The children share in flesh and blood with all that that implies, then he himself likewise partook of the same things, the same things. Now, he says it again in verse 15, and here he's, oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. We're going to go back to 15, uh, verse 15, but in, in verse 16, and we'll look at the end of 14 in just a, a bit to see why he took these things on. But in verse 16, he says it in a different way. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, this, this verb, to help, this verb can be translated in a stronger way. And the stronger translation is this. Not just in general to help, but to take on, to assume to oneself. 
And up until the 17th century, that's how it was translated in our, in our, our translations into English. And so let me read it that way. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he takes on or takes upon himself, but he takes on the offspring of Abraham. And uh, in spite of the, the, the general trend toward translating this in general just as help, I think the older translations fit better in this context, that he's not just helping in some vague way. He is assuming he is assuming, he is taking on, and he did not take on the angels. It's interesting. If you were kind of given the option of, of helping angels, taking on the angels as yours, or taking on humans, which would you choose? You might, from what we know of the awesomeness of angels, you might say, well, I would, I would help out the angels. We said, no, he did not. He didn't assume angelic nature. He didn't take responsibility for the angels in the way that he took responsibility for, as it calls here, the offspring of Abraham, offspring of Abraham, humans. And so it may be saying very specifically that he's taking on human nature here, he's assuming it to himself, or if not that specific, at least he's taking the responsibility, he's taking us as his, his own. Now, in verse 17, it, it spells this out, and it emphasizes that he became like us in our humanity in every respect. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every respect. So his humanity is not different from ours. His humanity is just like ours. Now, later on he will mention that there is one specific difference between Jesus and us that is important, and that is that he never sinned. He never sinned. But that doesn't mean that he had a different sort of humanity. Nor does it mean that he was not tempted to sin. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. That describes the human experience, doesn't it? And Jesus had that same human experience. So his humanity was just like Hours. That is what the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God means. Now, um, I, I, we're going to go comb back through this again and ask the question, why? That is to say, for what purpose was the Son of God enfleshed in flesh and blood just like ours? Um, of course, God cannot die. God cannot die. Um, but humans, we die. And so, um, not only do we die, but we also are tormented by the fact that we are going to die even when we are living. Our mortality afflicts us. It bothers us throughout our whole lives as we begin to have consciousness of the fact that, that we are going to die someday. And that's what verse 15 says. It talks about, uh, in verse 14, the power of death, and then it says, uh, talks about those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery, why? Because we're alive and we know that one day we are going to die and at two or three in the morning our mortality grabs hold of us and it terrifies us and it keeps us in slavery. Now it says that while God is sovereign over death, the author here identifies death 
as the chief instrument of the devil to keep us in fearful slavery. Isn't this interesting? God is certainly sovereign. He's the one who makes alive. He's the one who has the power of death and life. Um, But at the same time, it says here, the one who has the power of death at the end of verse 14 is the devil. And what does he do? He torments humans all of our lives with this idea that one day, human, one day, your days will be up. That's one of the chief instruments of the devil to keep us cringing and in fear all of our lives. Now, the purpose of the enfleshment of God is to deliver us. To deliver us not only from death, but also from the fear of death while we are alive. Let's put this together. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that, in order that, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's the purpose. Why? Why did the Son of God enflesh? Why did he take on our humanity? In order to deliver us, to destroy the works of the devil and to deliver us from that lifelong fear of death and to deliver us from death. Now this is surprising, isn't it? How did did the Son of God enflesh How did he destroy death? What does it say? By dying. That that seems counterintuitive, right? How do you destroy death by succumbing to death? Uh, that, That seems kind of a surprising recipe for destroying death, and he doesn't spell it out here. But but think about this. If he took on humanity, and one aspect of humanity that is has happened since sin entered the world is what? Humans will die. But what if someone, if someone could enter into the jaws of that for us and wrestle it to the ground? What if someone could not go around that thing that is, that is human, that all of us have to pass through? What if someone could, could go right into it and, and, and wrestle it to the ground and take it out? And that's what it's saying Jesus did. Now, later in other places, we, we understand that his resurrection was victory over death. And that, that checks with us. That makes sense, right? Because if someone's dead and rises, well, that's a victory over death. But he's saying that not only was the resurrection victory over death, but his death was his victory over death and our victory over death. Now, another way of explaining this, which he does here and throughout this letter, and you could, you could see this as, as the main theme of the letter, and that is by focusing on his work as high priest, high priest. And this letter is the explanation of his priesthood like no other place in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were three offices, and we've actually mentioned a couple of those already today in our Old Testament reading. There was the prophet who declared God's will and word to the people. There was the king who ruled over God's people and defended them. And there was the priest who represented them before God and offered sacrifice for their sins. A basic principle, a basic principle of representation is that you have to be among the people whom you are representing. Uh, There were a couple of candidates in this past election uh, series that were questioned. Now, what state do you live in? Where is your home? 
And, and the, it didn't help them that they had for a long time lived in another state and for the purpose of the election had, had moved or maybe not really moved to the state where they wanted to be the representative. And the people were saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can't do that. You can't be our representative. Some of the people at least were saying, you can't be our representative. Why? You are not a native here. You're not a, a resident here. You are not one of us, so you can't represent us. That is, that is a principle of representation. You have to be among those, a member of those whom you represent. And that's what he says here in verse 17. Therefore, he had, do you hear the necessity there? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And here's another so that clause, purpose clause. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made just like us in order to be one of us so that he could represent us and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. That's what a priest does. A priest makes sacrifices. You see that all through the Old Testament. And Hebrews emphasizes uh, that he made a sacrifice as well. But there's a surprise here. He made a sacrifice, and his sacrifice was himself. And so here he's playing a due role. If you look at uh, Hebrews 9.26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus is priest and Jesus is also sacrifice. And so these two strains are coming together in the same person. He offers sacrifice for the sins of the people. And what does he offer? Rather, whom does he offer? He offers himself, priest and sacrifice at the same time. Now, there's a technical word here that comes up, uh, and it's, it's translated here propitiation. Propitiation, this came up in our men's Bible study this past week as well. He had to be made like them, like them in every respect to be a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Not a word that we use commonly, is it? Propitiation. Now, uh, this is a rich word. It's a technical word. Some translations use the word expiation to try to make it less hard, but that's not any more common, is it? That doesn't help too much because it's as unusual a word as is propitiation. Um, others spell it out. Others spell it out, and they say something like sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, sacrifice to take away sins, which are, which are helpful translations. But, but it, it's helpful to compare this idea of expiation and this idea of propitiation. Expiation is the taking away of the guilt of our sin, taking away the guilt of our sin. And that's a legal concept uh, to move us from guilty to not guilty. A legal concept takes away the guilt of sin. Propitiation is the gaining of the favor of the one whom we have offended. So this is, this, is, this is more personal. This is not just a legal concept. This is not just guilty, not guilty. This is a personal relational concept. Not only is the, the guilt taken away, but also there is the favor of the one whom we have offended we have that favor now. So propitiation, as, as hard a word as it is, it's actually a beautiful word. It's a word that talks about reconciliation and favor gained and, and wrath and displeasure averted. 
Now, while Jesus accomplished both expiation and propitiation as our high priest, the, the emphasis here is on his work securing the favor of God. Not just taking away the guilt, which he did, but securing the favor of God. And so we, if we ask ourselves if God is for us or against us, for us or against us, we can say that he is for us. Now, his, his becoming one of us could have been to smash us. It could have been to destroy us, but that's not why he became one of us. He became one of us to propitiate God, to, to, to bring the favor of God to us. And if we ask how we know that God is for us, the answer is because Christ died for us, because Christ is our propitiation. Now, there's one final question, and that's this. For whom did the Son of God enfleshed do this? For whom did he do this? And the first verse uh, that we looked at, verse 14, is, is quite general. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And so it's focusing on humanity here. He did this for humanity. And then he gets more specific in verse 16. It says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps, or rather I would say takes on, assumes the offspring of Abraham. So there's a general focus that the, he did this for humanity, but there's a specific focus as well, that he did this for the offspring of Abraham. And that might alarm us because we might say, no, wait a minute, he did this only for the Jews? Is that who the offspring of Abraham are? But it's interesting that Paul used exactly this same expression, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, and he told us who they are in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, he said, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The same expression. Then who are the heirs of Abraham whom, whom, whom the Son of God incarnate has taken to himself, taken on? Those for whom he has made propitiation, those for whom he has secured the favor of God, it is those who are Christ's. And, and who are Christ's? Well, very simply, those who believe in him. So, if, if you want God to be favorable towards you, if you want God to be propitious towards you, if you want the sacrifice of Christ, his, his high priestly work as, as a human to be for you, then believe on Jesus then trust in Jesus. And you enter into that category of, of the children of Abraham, whom he took on to make Propitiation. So let's go back to our original question and see what we've gained. Was the incarnation really necessary? Was there some other way? Well, the author of Hebrews says it was absolutely necessary. He says here, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It was necessary for God to become a human in order to represent us before God, in order to die for us, in order to live in our place, in order to rise from the dead, in order to propitiate God. But we can back it up another step and say, well, was that necessary? That is, did God need to do that? And of course, it's always, we're, we always need to be careful when we, we talk about what God needed to do or not. But it was necessary. If God wanted to take on the children of Abraham, he needed to become incarnate. That, that much is clear. 
But he needed to do that only if he wanted to take on the children of Abraham. And so that backs us up a step, doesn't it? And so the incarnation was necessarily only if God wanted to save us in the first place. Something that as far as I can see, he did not have to do. Something that, of course, he was not obligated by us to do. Something that we place no obligation on him to do. So in other words, if God wanted to save us from our sins propitiate himself, secure his own favor toward us, then the only way for him to do that was through the incarnation of his son. But if we take a step back and ask why he wanted to save us in the first place, here we run into a wall. We run into a wall of of God's will, but it's a beautiful wall because it's God's love. And so the only answer to that, well, well, why? Why did God want to do this in the first place? And the answer is one of two things. One, because he wanted to, he willed to. Or another way of saying it is because he loves us. Because he loves us so much that he took the only, the only way, that most extraordinary step of becoming one of us to make propitiation for our sins. When I first became a Christian, I joined a church and was baptized and and in joining that church they they did something that we did as do as well. They handed me a little document. I'd never heard of it before. It's called the the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's a question and answer format. And it's a it's a summary of theology. We give that out as well to to those who want to become members of our church. It's a beautiful summary of Christian doctrine. And I was reading through it, brand new Christian, and I got to to, ver- or to question 21, which says, who is the redeemer of God's chosen ones? And the answer goes like this. The only redeemer of God's chosen ones is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And I got to that last word, and I thought, no, this can't be right. I was following, I was tracking with it up until that last word, forever. Because as a new Christian, I had invented my own heresy in my own mind. I didn't know it, but I, I'd invented my own false teaching in my own mind. My, my own idea was this. Okay, I get the idea of the incarnation, that, that God became one of us. But certainly he gave up that gig as soon as he could. Certainly he, 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 he cast off that, 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 that humanity as soon as he could. So maybe he was willing to, to mix himself up with us for a little while, but certainly he would want to get as far as he could away from that humanity so that it wouldn't cling to him any longer than necessary. But that, that verse is right. That, that answer is right. It's, it's, it's what the scripture teaches. As amazing as that is, he the eternal Son of God became human and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Without ceasing to be God, he continues to be man. And at that point, at about 18 years of age, 
I grasped for the first time what the Incarnation is. How, how radical a step. How amazing that is that God would, would link himself to us not just for a moment to perform some dirty task but to link himself to us forever. And so I got a glimpse not only of what the Incarnation really is but I also got a dip, deeper glimpse of God's love for us that he would love us so much that he would become one of us, not just for a little while, but forever. Let's pray. Our God, we are we're ranging into areas that are beyond our comprehension, but we're seeing in your word that it is so, that your son, our savior, became one of us, took on the same kind of humanity that we have so that he could be one of us so that he could make propitiation so that he could free us from the power of death and Lord I, I pray for all of us here that we would be offspring of Abraham that by faith in Jesus that, that this propitiation would be ours that Christ the high priest would be ours Lord we praise you that you took this extraordinary step that was necessary, but only if you wanted to save us in the first place. And so we worship you, O oh God, and we thank you for becoming one of us forever so that you might ever and always be our propitiation, our representative, our salvation, our freedom from death, and our freedom from the fear of death as long as we live. We pray this in Christ's name.